This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're talking about the coronavirus pandemic. COVID may be furthering the generational divide. Millennials, members of Gen Z, facing the biggest setbacks in their lives during the pandemic-induced recession. They're often, though, also being blamed for spreading the virus around. Now the experts believe the frustration felt by the youth could lead to long-term consequences. Now, I love this story because it's so weird. Would you jump on the next flight out of town, like right now, now, probably like most people, I don't know, would you fly now? No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. But Emirates Airlines is promising <laughs> to cover your funeral costs if you happen to catch COVID on one of their planes <laughs> and drop dead. We will take a look at how brands are trying to advertise during a pandemic. This scene is a boardroom, a whiteboard. Somebody walks in and says, I got the idea right here. Here's the campaign. <laughs> Can you imagine like everybody's like mouth dropping and they're like, all you know like. But going, you can't see it because they got masks on. <laughs> Good point. Good With point. the rush to develop a vaccine, will political pressure come into play? The president, President Trump, continues to promise a vaccine will be here soon. So will scientists be cutting some corners? We'll take a look at that. And with the dangerous virus surging across the world, many people have been choosing to skip things that do seem immediately, or don't seem, I should say, to be immediately necessary. Now, that may be why we are seeing a dramatic drop in the number of people receiving their routine cancer screenings. And doctors, they're worried that this could lead to a surge in cancer cases down the road. There's a Federal Reserve Board governor offering the prescription to a depressed economy. Shut the entire country down without any exceptions. Everybody stays in six weeks. Would it work? Would you do it? And would you really stick to it? Twenty-somethings in this country who have been blamed as the main source for the resurgence of coronavirus, they are increasingly fed up. Their social lives shut down, their careers put on pause, and on top of all that, they're often criticized for acting like they are invincible, which leads us to another side effect from the pandemic, COVID-inspired generational warfare. Sion Leah Bylock is president of Barnard College at Columbia University, so there are reports all around the world say young people in different countries are rebelling against the rules, wearing masks, social distancing. You see in the similar behaviors uh, here in the U.S.? Well, I think we shouldn't generalize to everyone. There's certainly a lot of young people who are being very responsible, but it's also the case that um, a lot of people are tired of the uh, social distancing and other recommendations, and um, not everyone always makes the best decisions. So do you see a distinction, though, between people making these decisions for social reasons, like I miss my friends, I'm in my youth, I'm 23, I want to go out, I want to hang out with people, and then financial situations, like maybe I was working in the hotel industry or at a restaurant or at a bar, and now I don't know what to do, and I don't have a lot of places to turn, because there's frustration both ways. Yeah, and I think that um, oftentimes people aren't so great about seeing the long-term consequences of what's going on. We think about the short-term. It's one of the reasons that diets are hard to maintain. It's hard to think about the long-term health benefits rather than the short-term goal of eating the burger. And so some of it comes down to that. 
But there have been other cases. Uh, I mean, you know, it's been a long time, but we did have a pandemic uh, 100 years ago. There were young people then. We've had sort of many uh, pandemics since then. Swine flu uh, was one, although it wasn't as pervasive as the coronavirus. Is it just the longevity of this one and the prospects that it's going to probably go on for many months and maybe longer than that that's causing this? Well, some of it is you think about the immediate, what you're going to do, who you're going to see, not maybe that you would catch something that would show up in two weeks or later. And so it's part of it is about thinking about not just the reward in that moment, but what is actually going to happen down the line. Can you change that mindset? I mean, I try and think back to when I was in college and I probably just thought about tomorrow also. I wasn't two, three weeks out. I wasn't years out. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing to do is think about what's immediate to you. So are you um, living or in touch with parents or relatives who could be more affected? I mean, it is true that we tend, as we're younger, to think of ourselves as more invincible, but certainly we have an impact on those around us. And I think really appealing to that is, is important. And also, I mean, I think making sure that we aren't saying all young people are like this. At, at Barnard, where we're bringing our plans to bring back about half of our campus, we have students who are really excited about sort of at, about a new community and doing the work. Um, and it's about helping all everyone feel about that collective. How, though, do you get the message to those young people who all the medical experts seem to now be in agreement on are primarily the demographic that is driving the resurgence of this pandemic, and there's, there seems to be very little medical question about that at the moment. How do you get that message to them that it is not only their responsibility largely, but it's also a responsibility to society at large to do the things that they find and are getting bored with, like wearing masks and like social distancing? Yeah, I mean, I think it requires a cultural change. And so everyone has to feel part of the collective. So it's not just hearing it on the news or hearing it from the government. It's got to be hearing it from those people you're closest with, your parents, your friends. The younger people have to support other people in this. If your friends are telling you to wear a mask, you're more likely to do it, I would guess, than if you're hearing it from your mayor or from the governor or from someone else. Sion Leah Bylock, president of Barnard College at Columbia University. Thanks. Does the latest advertising campaign from Emirates Airlines make you eager to jump on one of their planes? Here it is. Ready? The major international carrier says if you catch COVID-19 on one of their flights and die from the virus, the airline will cover all the funeral expenses for you. It is what they think of as a deal. How nice of them. Yeah. Rohit Bargava, founder of the marketing consulting firm The Non-Obvious Company, lectures on advertising and marketing at Georgetown. So, Rohit, do you think this is going to work? You know, I think that it's one of those category of messages that, uh, that you're increasingly seeing out there, which is, hey, stuff's not going to change, uh, and so we're adjusting, uh, and we're doing the best we can. Who knows, right? I mean, hopefully they'll never have to make good on that promise, at least. So, how do you think... This was bounced around in the advertising department because this is like the furthest one we've seen down this down this new path that you're talking about where things aren't going to change. It's going to be like this for a while. So do they just think, you know what, let's go with it. 
Yeah, I think part of it is that. Part of it is also, I mean, there's some clever people who are working there who know that uh, when you go sensational, you're going to get talked about. And to some degree, that's part of the goal of marketing right now, especially when people aren't able to travel. At least they're talking about it and, uh, and reflecting on it. Well, you know, it's not, and it's not just the airline. I, I saw something um, a few days ago from, uh, I, came, I think it's the travel website for the entire country of Iceland. Uh, and what Iceland was promising was kind of the same thing. It was saying, you know, if you go to Iceland, they'll pay for a COVID test when you arrive at the airport. If you test positive, they'll pay for the 14 days in quarantine at a hotel there and if you get sick, I believe it said, they'll even pay your medical costs. So I don't know if that's practical or if it's being desperate or a combination of the two. Well, I think they, they can do that because they have the uh, healthcare system probably. But Iceland's been really creative. I mean, they did a virtual campaign where they encouraged people to submit their screams. And they had a speaker and they would play your scream out in the wilderness because the, they found that people just needed to let it out, like that feeling inside. <laughs> so now they're just encouraging you to dream of these wide open spaces in Iceland where you could scream and no one will hear you. So wait, so the ideal thing would then be to be totally covered is to fly, if they go there, Emirates to Iceland. <laughs> That's right. And then you could scream in the wilderness and come back and maybe feel better. Not a worry on your minds. So I assume they still focus group this stuff to figure out if it's going to work. Because you see the TV commercials, right? And everybody's wearing masks. And I don't know if it makes me feel more comfortable and like, ooh, I want to go to this place, this casino or this. I mean, Disneyland had the one, too. Welcome back to Disney World. Here's everybody in their masks. Or if it's just kind of unnerving still seeing it and going, well, that looks like fun. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. They have so many ads that, that have exactly the opposite messages, right? I mean, one message is, it's going to be over soon. Like, come on back. We have everything sanitized. Uh, people are in masks. It's reopening. And the exact opposite message that says, you know, it's not going to be over soon. And you've got entire countries like Barbados saying, look, we've got an incentive. Come move to Barbados for the next 12 months and remote work from there because we've got beautiful beaches. And for the next 12 months, you're going to be work, working remotely anyway. This is Barbados. I'm taking notes. This is Barbados. Yeah, that's right. You may want to check into it. Yeah. And the time difference is what, so we can still hook you up I, I, you know, and I don't do care. the show from out care. there. Um, the marketing that is going on besides these big campaigns that are getting all of the attention, is it different now? I, I'm getting a lot of emails. I'm getting a lot of text messages from places I used to buy stuff from. Is it more focusing on customers that have already been to you rather than reaching out to new people? Because I don't know how many new people you're going to lure in during a pandemic. Well, you'd, you'd be surprised. I mean, I think that uh, people are changing their, their buying habits in, in some ways. So you're seeing like a reinvention of business models. I mean, if you look at the entertainment industry and the whole news about uh, Universal and AMC theaters and shortening that window of movies going from uh, theater time to then being on demand, I mean, the business models are shifting and you're seeing more and more of these examples of people trying to use their marketing to be supportive. I mean, there was a brand of baby wipes in the UK that created a virtual support hub for new parents where they could support each other in this time when they can't see family and get the usual support from grandparents and everything else that, that a lot of people count on when they have a new baby. Hmm. Rohit Bhargava is founder of the marketing consulting firm, The Non-Obvious Company. There is undeniable pressure from President Trump himself, not to mention most of society, to get a vaccine against COVID-19 developed as quickly as possible. The president himself, especially motivated to have a vaccine available, oh, before Election Day. But going too quickly to develop a vaccine does present all kinds of possible trouble. 
Dr. Paul Offit teaches vaccinology at the University of Pennsylvania, directs the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. Just the guy to talk to for this. So, a lot of pressure out there from, gee, I don't know, everybody in the world and the president. The scientists end up, do you worry they end up cutting some corners? Well, not yet. I mean, I think we, you know, what, what's happened is the administration, to their credit, frankly, took the risk out of making these vaccines. So normally, you know, companies move slowly because they take incremental financial risks. Now what's happened is that the government said, look, we'll pay for mass production, even if we don't know whether it works and safe. We'll pay for the phase three trials, which often cost hundreds of millions of dollars, and we'll take the risk. So that's moved it along much quicker. I think right now we're in phase three trials. A couple com- 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 companies have already started with phase three trials, which usually it's going to be about 30,000 people who either who do or don't get a vaccine. As long as we do that, as long as we take those phase three trials to completion, then I think things haven't been too slow. But if, if the government does decide to reach their hand into the warp speed bucket, pull out a couple of vaccines before those phase three trials are completed, simply to get a boost for the, you know, the November election, then I think that, that we were in trouble. Yeah, but I, but I tell you what concerns me. I, um, and I've talked about this on the show before, I, I'm one of those people who I did uh, sign up for, um, you know, uh, there's a government website site or some website to uh, uh, participate in one of the phase three trials. And there's small print in it that talks about that if you get selected, you have to kind of guarantee that you're part of a two-year study. So it's two years. If they're still studying it for two years from the time you get jabbed in the arm, doesn't that mean that until that two-year period is over, they're not really sure about a lot of stuff? Well, so, so what they're doing is they're looking to see how long efficacy lasts. I mean, that's the main reason there. So so, so let's say within a year of the study, they find that it's 75% effective at protecting moderate to severe disease, and they could say that that's true for a year. Is that enough to sort of release the vaccines to the general population? I think the answer to that question is yes, if the virus is still doing what it's doing now. Um, but they'll continue to, hopefully it'll be, you know, we'll continue to follow it at some level even beyond that. To answer the question, how long is, for how long does this effectiveness last? You, you, you usually don't know that even when you first release vaccines for exactly how long it's going to last. So I think that's good that they're continuing. Yeah, but isn't it, but, but isn't it, that two-year period is, is, is more than just for its efficacy. Isn't it also because regardless of what shows up as potential side effects in the phase three trial, until you get not, not 30,000, but, you know, millions of people inoculated over a long period of time, several years, you don't really know all the potential side effects that may show up. And that's always true. I mean, if they let's say they have 20,000 people in the, in the vaccine group, 10,000 in the placebo group, 20,000 people is not 20 million people. But, you know, you don't test 20 million people before the vaccine gets out there. So the question is, what level of, of safety are you willing to, to, to tolerate in terms of a risk? I mean, if you tell somebody um, that it's been tested in 20,000 people and it's safe, are you willing to get it? Um, they may say, well, I would prefer it to be 50,000 people, so they wait. But, you know, again, there, there's the benefit of the fact that the virus is killing people every day. But that's true of every vaccine. I mean, the good news is there are systems in place like the Vaccine Safety Data Link or the, the so-called PRISM program, which, which is run by the FDA, where very quickly when the vaccine gets out there, and it, and it is in millions of people, that you can pick up rare side effects. You never know about rare side effects until the vaccines are out there. I mean, Maurice Hillman, who's the father of modern vaccine, said it best, quote, I never breathe a sigh of relief until the first three million doses are out there. That's always true. Well, there's already an anti-vaxxer crowd, as you know, so worries on your part that people just don't want to take it because they do think it's been rushed no matter what. 
Well, I think if you have good phase three data showing that in 30,000 people that it's it's safe and effective, at least as far as you know, that's about that's that's the right size of a phase three study. The human papillomavirus vaccine was roughly that size. So was the conjugate pneumococcal vaccine. So I think that's reasonable. So then it's a matter of being transparent, making sure people know what you know and what you don't know, and then so that they they can make the best decision regarding whether they want to get it. There, there are, you know, there's there's no risk-free choices. There's just choices that take different risks. That's true pretty much of every medical product. Dr. Paul Offit teaches vaccinology, University of Pennsylvania, member of the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. People have spent a lot more time at home during the coronavirus pandemic. Now, that's a good thing when we're talking about controlling the spread of the virus, but a lot of people were just too nervous to go to the doctor's office as well. Studies are showing that the number of screenings for cervical, colon, and breast cancers in the first few months of 2020 are a lot lower than they've been in previous years. So what could that end up meaning for our collective health and for the cancer rate in this country. Dr. Angela Nicholas, Chief Medical Officer at Einstein Medical Center, spoke with KYW's Charlotte Reese about a cancer screening at home and whether telehealth works in detecting cancer. People are nervous to go out, and it seems like especially to the doctor's office. But there's still some things that people shouldn't skip, and one of those is cancer screenings. Why is this error right now of COVID and quarantine especially nerve-wracking for cancer screenings? Well, you're, you're correct in that I think patients are nervous about going to their physicians and specifically primary care physicians when they're feeling well. Um, everyone gets it when they're feeling sick. Of course, they want to go to their doctor or, or have a telemedicine visit, which is what a lot of primary care practices are doing. And I am a family physician. I should introduce myself as I'm a family doctor as well. So what's happening though is because patients are skipping their routine visits when they're feeling well just for a a physical or a checkup, maybe it's their three or four month diabetes check, is that they are not coming into the office and skipping those appointments then gets them off track for their routine screening. One of the most important things a primary care physician can do is make sure that a patient stays well. You know, we we all take care of patients when they're sick, but we really want them to stay well. And we do that through our routine screenings. We routinely recommend mammograms. We recommend getting blood work done. And for me, and especially in this venue, obviously colon cancer, colorectal cancer screening is really important. It has been estimated that about 18,000 patients will miss their colon cancer screenings during about the three or four months of the pandemic when, at least in Pennsylvania, things were really shut down and we really were not doing a lot of routine screenings. And as a result, that means that we're gonna find those cancers later. When you find colon cancer later, um, later could mean, you know, hopefully just two or three months from now, but in some patients, they just put it off and put it off and put it off. And what we know about colon cancer is that when it's found very early, 90% of it is curable. When it's found in the later stages, for example, stage four, only 10% of it is curable. So, So the thing about cancer and cancer screening is we do the cancer screenings to find things early. And if you're missing those cancer screenings, you're missing the early detection potentially of your cancers. And you mentioned a little bit about telehealth, and that's been a huge thing this year. Has telehealth actually helped with cancer screenings? Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So the practices that I'm responsible for here at Einstein, we pivoted actually very quickly to telehealth. 
recognizing that we didn't want patients to miss out on their routine diabetes and high blood pressure. And eventually we were able to do well visits via telemedicine. Because, you know, yes, of course, the physical exam is really important in a lot of cases, but probably 75% of what I do is really just talking to the patient and listening to what they have to say and then using that shared decision-making model to come to a conclusion about what they need to do. And so telemedicine still allowed myself and the patient to participate in a very meaningful way. For example, we weren't able to really do mammograms because, again, that part of the health system was really not able to practice at the time. But there's options for colon cancer screening that do not require you going into a hospital facility. There's at-home screening. So for patients that were due for their colon cancer screening, we could say, well, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, you had a colonoscopy. We can't really do those right now. But how about we do an in-home screening? And And in-home screenings can, depending on the type of testing you do, can be good for three years or one year. And patients were actually, frankly, people were looking for something different to do. I mean, it was like Groundhog Day every day. So when I said, hey, we can do colon cancer screening, it was like, oh, good, something new to do. So we were really, um, in my opinion, we were pretty successful in getting our patients to do at-home colon cancer screening kits where they didn't have to come to a hospital. They, you know, I felt good about the fact that I was actually able to get some cancer screening done and they were really participating in their healthcare by doing something maybe new. And now the studies show they'll be more willing to do that again in one year or three years. The president of the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis says that if Americans want to return to a normal and fully reopened, fully functioning economy, It's going to take some short-term pain to get there. That's because while the coronavirus continues to spread relatively unchecked, there is no returning to business as usual. So the prescription offered up for a severely ailing economy shut everything back down again, and I mean like everything, for at least six weeks to snuff out the virus as much as possible. Dr. Eric Fagel, epidemiologist, health economist, Harvard Chan School of Public Health. So if six weeks is what it takes, what does the six weeks look like? Well, I think it would look kind of like what we had in the spring, except the big difference is it's much less lackadaisical because oftentimes the shutdowns that we had were one page of shutdown rules and two pages of exemptions. And I think the problem is that there's too many people taking advantage of the exemption, saying, oh, I'm exempt, I'm exempt, I can go out. We really, to truly snuff it out, is no one go near each other for six weeks. And even trying to minimize even grocery stores. It's just really, really the strongest imaginable lockdown that you have, just to fully put it out. Uh, so we can actually you know, have a relatively good fall. And to do that and actually do it in practice, what does it look like? I mean, you would have to pay people basically to stay home. Yeah, because there's so many workers who can't work from home. There's, there are so many working class blue collar workers that absolutely cannot do that, and it, or they don't have jobs. And, and the unemployment benefits right now are being cut um, we know that they're going to be cut to some degree, you know, optimally there's like kind of like a basic income, but, uh, absent of that is we kind of really need to make sure that the food is available to a lot of these people that we just absolutely have the strongest, strongest lockdown and no one tries to cheat it. 
and then we can really try to stuff it out. Well, then I guess the next question is, uh, the political system is such in this country, A, because of the political system in this country, but also because it's so decentralized by design. How do you pull that off? I know. And that is the really hard question, because in the U.S., you know, we have a lack of federal leadership in this um, pandemic, as we are all aware. And states, um, many states are just not willing to do that. Las Vegas has already said we're absolutely under no uncertain conditions ever locking down, shutting down ever again. And uh, the problem is, even if one state does it, somehow if they pull it off, the other neighboring states may not. And the U.S., as you know, it's a leaky ship. We don't have bulkheads like Europe does between its borders. Uh, If one state has a flare-up and there's no borders, then all states still remain at risk. So the actual practicality of this is that I don't know if we can actually do it successfully without, you know, we're all a big uh, ship, uh, and the ship will take on water through any hole, and the whole ship will continue to sink. And I think that's where we are as a country right now. All right, so if the six weeks is a hypothetical exercise, the reality is what, barring any major changes? We just kind of limp through it and open things up and then close them again if you need to and open things up and close them again? Yeah, we're going to likely go through this cycle. And even if once they has this um, decline, it can easily have a resurgence again. We've seen that Louisiana, of of all states, actually has been hit twice uh, with two different peaks. And they're really suffering. And I I just fear that we're going to go through these cycles up and down, up and down. And in the end, we would have done all these lockdowns all for naught if the flare-ups happen again and the cases travel from a different state. But so isn't the, it? But is the frustration. Yeah, but isn't it also happen? I mean, the the problem is though that if you look at examples in other parts of the world that were uh, far more successful, uh, at least perhaps initially, than we've been in containing or at least stopping the spread of the virus. Many of these countries, and I'm talking about from Western Europe to Eastern Europe to Asian countries, yeah. uh, were in much better political shape to be able to have more draconian lockdowns than we've ever had. And mm-hmm. while they were okay for a while, they're all seeing, or most of them anyway, are seeing a resurgence in, in various sectors of society. Yeah. Uh, there is no guarantee uh, that... There will be no resurgence. That's the problem. Japan is having resurgences. Hong Kong is having resurgences. And Singapore as well, to some degree. And even Vietnam, who actually did really well, and is actually a really good example that you don't have to be a high-income country, they're still having smoke. But their flare-ups are nothing on the scale that we are having, nothing on the scale of Texas or Florida or Arizona that we had. They're much more small blips in flare-ups. But the problem is oftentimes the most successful countries are islands. And the U.S. is, again, not an island. We're a very porous country. We have yeah, even be, uh, between different states and also many different sources of people coming, uh, still uh, coming through to the U.S. International travel still hasn't stopped. So this is why we're in this together as a, as a globe. This is why global governance and leadership together working collaboration it makes such a difference but here we are it's it's still going to have 
keep going. And we can't quarantine ourselves from people coming back from Vegas because we have no way to track it. And that's unfortunately the reality. Dr. Eric Fagel-Ding is epidemiologist and health economist, Harvard Chan School of Public Health. Film and TV production still down here in Los Angeles, but a new report says the state's recently relaunched tax incentive program is helping to get things started again. The Los Angeles Times says HBO is planning to move production of its show in treatment to California to take advantage of the tax benefits. And TBS is making a similar move with its comedy, Miracle Workers. Both are expected to receive about $5 million in tax credits for their upcoming season. Why do I think those are like the perfect titles for right now? In Treatment and Miracle <laughs> Workers. All right, thanks for listening to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get those podcasts. Stay well. Stay well.